This morning, we are going to hear about Charles Wesley and his hymns and how that fits into our series on learning about figurative ways to interpret scripture through creativity and imagination, and that certainly fits hymn making. Our speaker this morning, our presenter, is Mark Clemens, our very own Mark Clemens. Um, he was an English major at Wheaton College, so I am sure that he has will give us a very wonderful presentation this morning. Um, let us pray our prayer that we pray now each time. When there will be hopefully a time for discussion, but if you have like just like a burning question in the middle of Mark's presentation, go ahead and raise your hand, and I will bring you the microphone. Yeah. Shout it out, but we want to talk into the microphone. So everybody, and right here, right in front of us, so that everybody can hear on the recording. So let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Appreciate it. Um, I cannot stress enough how much of a interested lay amateur I am. Had no kind of pastoral or theological training. So if you have such expertise and uh, you want to call me out on anything <laughs> stupid that I'm saying, please do. Um, I've I've done this. This is the third time I've done a catechesis session, and each time it's been the week of Thanksgiving. So um, I'm clearly not to be trusted with large audiences. <laughs> But um, what I have done, and what you may have done too, is spent a little bit of time in, among uh, Christian intellectuals, or people who fancy themselves Christian intellectuals. Uh, and if so, you might have noticed there's two particular boogeymen that kind of pop up over and over again on which uh, we like to blame all of the ills of the contemporary church. Uh, one of them, of course, is evangelicalism. You may have heard this before. You might be able to rehearse some of these critiques yourself. Um, that may be part of why some of you are in this church right now, um, part of why I'm here. Um, the other boogeyman is the Enlightenment. <laughs> now, by that, I mean the pernicious and persisting influence of all those godless humanists in the 17th and 18th century with their subjection of all phenomena to human reason and their elevation of human liberty above all other virtues, their relentless skepticism of the supernatural. Um, <laughs> we have an amen, all right? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm being a little glib, but you, <laughs> you do hear arguments like this with some regularity online or in print, and when I was an undergraduate at Wheaton College way back in the second George W. Bush administration, uh, or the second term, 
of George W. Bush. It was practically the party line in some crowds. Uh, there, are, th these are some oversimplifications, but they're also not without a fair amount of truth. Um, all, all this prefaces, though, by way of kind of apologizing for standing up here today to talk to you about an evangelical from the Enlightenment. <laughs> so, um, I'm talking, of course, about Charles Wesley. Um, if you know him at all, you probably know that he was uh, with his brother John, one of the co-founders of the Methodist movement. Um, he was an itinerant revival preacher and also a prolific poet and hymn writer. Um, so I'll give you a, a kind of lightning quick biography here. He was born in 1707. Um, the exact date isn't really important, but what that means is that he's a contemporary of people like Jonathan Edwards, Benjamin Franklin, Samuel Johnson, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So we're, we're right in the heart of the Enlightenment here, right? Um, at his birth, the English Civil War was well in living memory. Many, many people could still remember a time when the country was completely torn apart um, by religion and politics. Um, and when he died in 1788, the US Constitution had just been ratified. So that's, that's quite a lot packed into one lifetime. Um, during his life, the population of both London and England as a whole actually doubled, which is, again, like a really amazing, I had to look up that figure a couple times because I, I didn't believe it at first. Um, this is an era of tremendous growth um, in his part of the world. But anyway, so he's born into a family that's full of clergy and musicians and poets, and so Charles was very much in the family business. Um, the spiritual life in England in the early 18th century is a little hard to pin down. Um, evangelical histories from that time um, like to paint it as an all but godless era uh, presided over by a decaying state church full of corrupt rent seekers who couldn't care less about Christian formation. Um, Mark Knoll, in a very helpful history of evangelicalism, uh, has shown this is not a totally fair portrait. Um, he points to lots of, uh, you know, Orthodox believers and clergy throughout England. Um, it's not quite the, the secularist time that, that we paint it as sometimes. Um, but there, to be fair, there was also a, a trend of what, what we sometimes call latitudinarianism in the Church of England, um, which is basically um, a sort of ratcheting down of the stakes of Christianity um, into something that looked a little more like kind of genial Humanism. Um, I lost my place. Yeah. Um, there are also a few small but very visible groups of dissenters in England at that time, which are basically any Protestant who didn't belong to the Church of England. So at that time, you had Presbyterians, you had Congregationalists, uh, kind of the descendants of the Puritans. You had Baptists, you had Quakers running around, as well as a small number of very closely watched Catholics who everyone was very suspicious of. Um, so there is some religious diversity in the England uh, of Wesley's day as well. Um, the Church of England's bigger problem than latitudinarianism or anything that it taught was just that it was an old, entrenched institution. It was too comfortable. It had become kind of too entangled with politics and money. Um, and it was too slow to respond to the rapidly changing world and the rapidly growing empire, which it was supposed to be representing. Um, in short, it was ripe for revival. So into this uh, environment, Charles Wesley comes to Oxford. Uh, he says, uh, 
I'll give it to you in his words. He says, my first year at college, I lost in diversions. A recognizable sentiment. Um, the next, I set myself to study. Diligence led me into serious thinking. And his serious thinking led him to start meeting regularly with his brother John and several other friends for prayer, Bible study, doing good deeds in the community, and most importantly, self-examination. Uh, they kept a very careful list of what they had done throughout their day um, and checked whether at each hour of the day they were in fact following uh, what God wanted them to do or were uh, falling prey to their own devices and desires. Um, for their intensity and for their fanatical practices like attending Eucharist once a week, um, this group became notable around Oxford and were given mocking nicknames like the Holy Club or the Bible Moths or the Enthusiasts or uh, the one that wound up sticking, the Methodists, because they had a method to everything. Um, as sometimes happens with groups like this, they eventually kind of took on the mocking nickname as their own and you know, made, it, um, made it their calling card. Um, so this is kind of the environment in which Charles uh, is first sort of spiritually formed um, and gets serious about his faith. He uh, briefly kind of catches fire for, for God, as uh, many young people do, and went on a missions trip, uh, as many young people do. Um, he wound up uh, getting appointed to um, some kind of position in Georgia. I forget exactly what the sort of drummed up position was, but what it basically meant is he was going to go over to the colonies in America, um, preach to the people there. This did not go very well at all. The colonists in Georgia really didn't want to listen to anything he had to say. Um, he wound up kind of um, inventing an excuse to go home, um, along with his brother John. It was, it was, um, it was a very despondent uh, moment in their lives. Um, and they returned home kind of questioning um, their zeal and whether um, they were going about things in the right way. Um, but they get home, and shortly after their, their re-arrival in England, um, within three days, both Charles and his brother John experienced a really dramatic spiritual renewal. Uh, Charles actually came first, and then three days later, his brother John had um, a kind of famous epiphany at Aldersgate, um, where he felt his heart strangely warmed, a phrase you might hear. Um, this was exactly the kind of turnaround they needed, um, and they were uh, lit with a newfound fervor that was centered around the transforming power of God's love as embodied in Christ's salvific work on the cross. Um, sounds quite a lot like uh, one of the hallmarks of modern-day evangelicalism. Um, it's not quite a personal relationship with Jesus, but we're moving in that direction, in that kind of language, in that way of thinking about how to practice your faith. Um, so as for their career from that point, they became traveling preachers, essentially. Um, the Church of England establishment did not really like the things they were preaching, didn't like the people they were preaching to. Um, and so uh, they wound up getting in trouble quite a bit with the local church leaders. Uh, Charles was actually forced to resign his post as a curate at a parish that he had been assigned to. Um, and since they weren't welcome in the churches, they started preaching outdoors. Um, Charles says again in, uh, in his own words here, 
We preached in the fields, and we sent, or rather carried from thence, multitudes to church who had never been there before. Um, especially uh, working class folks was kind of the, the primary uh, target of their revivals. Um, but he says, even though they were kind of given this mocking nickname of Methodist, they were not intending to start a new church. That happened later, and it was actually a source of contention between Charles and John. Uh, Charles, all of his life, thought of himself as a good Anglican and a good churchman, um, and was very distressed by the condemnation that he received from the establishment. Um, and towards the end of his life, when he learned that John had actually ordained uh, some priests on his own and sent them off to do missions in America, uh, he was furious and had kind of a falling out with his brother at that moment and said, we, we can no longer do ministry together. Um, so um, as Charles describes the outset of their career at the other end, um, he says, we had no plan but to serve God and the Church of England. The lost sheep of this fold were our principal care, not excluding Christians of whatever denomination who were willing to add the power of godliness to their own particular form. Um, embedded in that quote is a little, is, gives you a real kind of idea of how Charles approached people. He's trying to meet folks where they are. Um, and uh, we'll see how he does that in some of the language of his hymns a little, in a bit. Um, the two brothers uh, had very differing styles. Um, as their, uh, one of their associates and colleagues, Adam Clark, describes it, Mr. John Wesley mildly recommended that people go to the church and, and sacrament. Mr. Charles Wesley, Wesley threatened them with damnation if they did not. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned their kind of late disagreement over, over breaking with the Church of England. Um, they did kind of continue to get in trouble on and off throughout their career. Charles was actually on at least three occasions threatened with violence by an angry mob. So um, he really was actually kind of putting his, his money where his mouth was, so to speak, um, given the things he was preaching. Um, but uh, I'm here to talk about him more as a writer today than a preacher um, because he's mainly known for his hymn writing today. Um, the, the 18th century was an age of poetry. Um, as an English major, I don't think much of the poetry of that era, but there was a lot of it. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was a time when any gentleman could be expected to compose some heroic couplets. And uh, Charles is better than, than the average gentleman at that. Um, it's, it's very hard to get a number of how many hymns and poems he wrote. I have seen um, numbers anywhere from 6,000 to 10,000. So that's a lot. Um, how did he do it? He was very much a writer in Wordsworth's mold. He believed that poetry was the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions. And so um, whenever he had a kind of particularly moving experience in prayer or an epiphany as he was riding around on horseback, um, he would compose right there on the spot out of the overflow of his heart. Um, he would often write his poems on horseback, uh, and there are stories about him you know, arriving to wherever he was going and getting off the horse and running into the house shouting, pen and paper, pen and paper, got to get this down. Um, but uh, 
He was also a pretty sophisticated poet. Uh, he, uh, he would often borrow um, from uh, some of the giants of, of the day in literature, uh, Dryden, Addison, Pope. He uh, paraphrases all of them in, in his own hymns, um, and some of which are in our hymnal, in which we sing on, on a regular basis. Um, and he was, his own skill was regarded well enough that he was actually borrowed from, in turn, by William Blake, um, who, uh, I wrote down this quote because I liked it. Yeah, Blake said that he liked to use Wesley's hammer-headed iambics. <laughs> um, but um, as I was saying before, um, Wesley was a big believer in meeting people where they were. And like our Lord, he generally spoke to them in language that they could understand using the metaphors and images that were sort of readily available to them. So. Um, I, uh, I'm borrowing a list here from the literary critic Martha Winburn England. Um, to the stoneworkers, he might offer a hymn that went, strike with the hammer of thy word and break these hearts of stone. Right? And very much in their own idiom. Uh, to the miners, deep in their shafts, they sang, lift up your eyes, ye sons of light triumphant. To the fishermen, uh, he would give a hymn that said, teach me to cast my nets aright. And then to the farmers, he might say, look on the fields and see them white, already white to harvest sea, moved by the Spirit's softest wind, the sinners to their Savior turn. Their hearts are all as one inclined. Their hearts are bowed as waving corn. Isn't that beautiful? Um, but you see, yeah, he's, he's using language that people can readily identify with um, to speak to them and show them the parallels between their own life and the Christian life. Um, so uh, what else can we say about him as a hymn writer? Uh, like I said, he wrote a lot of them, um, a fair number of which are still uh, in the repertoire. So, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, love divine, all love, all love is excelling. Jesus, lover of my soul, rejoice the Lord is king, and can it be? Christ the Lord is risen today, come thou long expected Jesus. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Hark the herald angels sing. These are just a few. Uh, and I should note, by the way, that what Wesley actually wrote was, Hark How All the Welkin Rings. Uh, it was actually his fellow uh, revivalist and friend, George Whitfield, who substituted those Herald's Angels. Um, we should thank him for that. <laughs> uh, it's also worth noting that if you go and you know, pick up a giant volume of Wesley's hymns, you're not really going to encounter them in the form that we meet them in our hymnal. Um, what you're going to find uh, if you look at a Wesley hymn in its kind of raw, original form, is a very, very long poem, and in the middle of which you're going to see four or five stanzas where you go, hey, I know that. <laughs> and it's kind of buttressed by this whole, all these other stanzas that we don't sing. Um, but uh, they still kind of come together to form a really striking whole. Um, and so this kind of gets us around to our theme of figural reading. So um, lest we put words in in his mouth. Um, take a look at the first quote on your handout. Um, can I ask somebody to read that for me? If I give you a mic? Bruce, do you mind? Proud learning boasts its skill in vain, the sacred oracles to explain. 
It may the literal surface show, but not the precious mind below. The saving sense remains concealed and opened by the Lamb alone. Thank you. Yeah, so it's not a stretch at all to say that this was Charles' goal in expositing the scriptures. He's explicitly saying, I want to get below the literal meaning and see what's really down there. Um, yeah. So, and by the way, I notice um, you also get another little glimpse of his method in that stanza there. Um, the, uh, sorry, Laura, can I borrow the hand up for a second? Um, yeah, in those last two lines, the saving sense remains concealed and opened by the Lamb alone, right? So that's a reference to Revelation, as you probably noticed, and you might have even caught the pun, concealed, right? We're calling that chapter where the Lamb is opening the seals on the scroll, right? Um, this is the kind of uh, imaginative mind that Charles is bringing to his poetry. Um, so uh, the other thing to note about Wesley, and we've touched on this a little bit, is that his style of figural reading is in a distinctly missional mode. Um, because I need to just grab a handout because I'm going to keep referring to it. I didn't get one for myself. Uh, one of these long maps. Okay. Um, as I was saying, right, so he his figural reading is distinctly missional. And what I mean by that is that he is writing with a purpose of engendering strong emotions in the listener in order to bring about a conversion experience, right? This is the stock and trade of the revival preacher. Um, he's doing it with quite a bit of sophistication, but um, it's essentially an altar call. All of his hymns, or most of them, build to that kind of climactic moment where you, the listener, are invited to participate in this moment uh, after having reflected on what Jesus has done for you. Um, and so to that end, uh, when Wesley uses the kind of typologies that we've been talking about as we look at figural reading, um, they're all about Jesus. He's not really, um, generally he's not drawing other kinds of parallels between Old and New Testament figures. It's, it's all about Jesus. Um, so to, for him, you know, or between Old Testament figures as well, um, everything is Jesus. So by turn, uh, Moses is Christ, Joshua, Samson, David, all Christ. Jacob's ladder becomes the cross. Yeah. Noah's ark becomes the wounds of Christ in which we hide and take refuge. Um, I said, I'm not being entirely truthful. The Holy Spirit is also another big referent, and we're actually going to examine um, uh, him where he talks about the Holy Spirit in a little bit. Um, but to give one example of the way that he kind of works typology and how he brings it out quite explicitly, um, here's an example of him using uh, Isaac as a type of Christ. Um, so I'll read this. Burdened with our griefs and cares, that true Isaac from the skies, lo, himself the wood he bears to the place of sacrifice, bears it to Moriah's top, there extended on the tree, Lo, the universal hope hangs and bleeds and dies for me. Um, so he's very clearly drawing that parallel between Isaac and Christ. There's nothing subtle about it. Um, it is interesting to note, I think, that he is kind of going about 
interpreting that story in a different way than we usually do. If you're coming at it with a kind of you know, classic penal substitution view that maybe a lot of us got uh, growing up, you know, it's the ram in that story that's Jesus, right? Isaac is sort of us, right? That you know, God substitutes a, 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 an innocent victim for at the last moment, right? Um, for Wesley, though, it's, it's that action of Isaac knowingly bearing the wood to the place where he is to be sacrificed. That, that is the real image of Christ that he's pulling out. So that kind of figural reading where you're looking for archetypes, uh, we can basically get a handle on that kind of reading. Um, with a little practice, um, it's not too difficult to do. Um, but we can get some idea else of um, the other sorts of things that figural reading can do or what it can look like by examining three of Wesley's other methods for working with scripture. Um, this is not intended to be a comprehensive overview of how Wesley approaches scripture. I haven't read all 10,000 of his hymns or whatever. So yeah, I know, I'm sorry, Matt. Next time I will try. <laughs> so I don't, these could be outliers. I don't know. Um, but all that to say, um, they, they, were, they struck me as a kind of particular uh, ways of engaging with scripture that I thought were interesting. So the, the first passage I want to look at is um, actually not on your handout, but it's in your hymnal. So if you want to grab the nearest hymnal to you and uh, go to hymn 239. Now, this is one that we don't sing very much. Um, at least I've never heard it here at All Souls, but um, it's worth having a look at. Um, now, the first thing I'd like you to note um, is the composer, Samuel Sebastian Wesley. That's not a coincidence. That is, in fact, Charles's grandson. So this whole hymn is kind of a family affair. Um, but if you look down at the bottom of the page, you'll see underneath Charles' name, it says, based on Leviticus 6.13. So um, I don't think there are a lot of hymns taken from Leviticus. I don't know. <laughs> um, now, what is the context of the passage, you might wonder? Well, it's the rules for burnt offerings. Uh, God is explaining to Moses how the burnt offering system is going to work. Um, and verse 13, I'm going to read this in the King James Version because that is the version that Charles would have known and used. Um, the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. So that, that is the verse from which he draws all of this, right? Um, so turning to the hymn, the first verse, O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart. Um, that's... That's the Holy Spirit I was talking about before, right? That here, for once, is not a Christ image in Wesley, but um, he's using a Pentecostal image, right? Um, Kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. So, yeah, we have uh, the law being replaced with some, you know, in Leviticus, being replaced with something very different. That fire that's supposed to consume the burnt offering is actually located within our heart, which is the altar. Um, so Wesley's argument here is that that passage in Leviticus is a kind of secret foreshadowing of Pentecost. What do we think about that? Um, read on. Uh, 
Now let it for thy glory burn with an extinguishable blaze, trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Um, there's, a, there's a painting of, is it St. Augustine, right? Where like he's like holding his head. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, Matt, right? His, his heart is like on fire, right? And it's and the fire is like ascending up into like out of the corner of the painting. Have you all seen what I'm talking about? Um, this is the sort of image I'm getting here. And so the the fire that's in us is also is the same fire um, that comes down from heaven. Um, it's not it's not two separate actions. We are not sort of mimicking God's action. Um, we're not creating a metaphor for it. It's the same thing. Um, and now we turn to Christ, right, in verse 3. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire, still stir up a gift in me. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat. Till death thy endless mercies seal and make the sacrifice complete. Um, I like that, like the context of Leviticus, he talks about the repetition of this action. This is not a one-and-done conversion kind of moment. Um, it's the sort of thing that we need to do all the time, and it's only going to end with our death. Um, this is really striking how much he pulls out of that one verse in Leviticus, which is barely a sentence fragment. Um, this, this is one way that Charles approaches scripture, which is basically to take a passage and allow it to build up, um, I almost want to say a totally different set of associations and meanings than it has in its original context, um, especially drawing on the New Testament, right, um, which presumably the author of the Pentateuch has no knowledge of. Um, right, uh, it, you might almost say he's riffing. Right? Yes, Denise. Yeah, I, that's, I actually didn't know that about Susanna, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that of course, like he, Wesley is somebody who has the scripture, and especially the, the King James Version, in his bones um, in a way that, that's a, a little hard to conceptualize now. Um, I was, no, I was going to add one thing to that. Um, I forget what it was. That's, that's fine. Um, oh, yeah, in, in the uh, little chapter on Wesley, in in our, our book for the semester here, um, the, the author of the chapter relates, um, oh, just mentions that Wesley would sometimes actually improve on the King James Version in his own. You know, um, he knew it well enough to critique its prosody, right? And would write his own little paraphrases of things. Um, he didn't, he really didn't like um, the, uh, kind of famous hymn of kenosis uh, that Paul writes, you know, um, I think, what, what is the King James? It's like, made, you know, he made himself nothing or something like that. Um, when Wesley goes to paraphrase that in a hymn, he says he emptied himself, makes it a very forceful word, right? Um, that's, the, that's the kind of critique I'm talking about. 
Um, any other thoughts about this? I, I will move on, but I'll pull the room. Yeah, do we have other thoughts about this particular hymn, Matt? We should probably note also that he's engaging with the Leviticus text in a very imaginative way, just as Jews have also done. Yes. That's, that's an excellent point. Yeah, there is something almost Talmudic about Wesley's approach to the scriptures sometimes. And when we lament that we lost that, it looks like it was very recoverable because it was so in our, our DNA. Uh, evangelicalism and white men notwithstanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm teasing you all I've, a little I've bit. I've got a question, too. I yes, Rich. Have the mic. And you have the mic, yeah. <laughs> She just handed it to me. It was great. Please, um, go ahead. So how were, the, how were these songs? You, okay, so we're out in a field, and it's cold, and they're minors. Mm -hmm. How is the whole service going? What's going on with this music? Does he have musicians? How is this being used? That is a great question. Um, I don't know. I've spent a lot of time looking at um, his words. And his lyrics. I don't really, I, I have not gotten a good sense of how the revivals were um, conducted. If I'd read a little farther in Knoll's history of evangelicalism that I was mentioning, um, you might get, that might be one good place to look. Um, I can tell you a little story from the chapter um, on Wesley in our book. Or no, this is actually from, uh, from Martha England, the literary critic I mentioned. Um, she describes a scene where uh, a group of inebriated soldiers are coming home from a tavern and sort of, I don't know, get lost or something and wind up at a Wesley revival. Um, and they're, they're sitting in the back and kind of singing the body song that they had been singing on the, way, uh, on the way home. And Charles notices this and knows that he's about to lose the crowd. And so um, he manages to pick up the tune that they're singing and immediately improvises lyrics on it. Um, and you know, kind of uh, taking puns and images from the soldierly life that this kind of rowdy crowd would, would relate to, and start spinning that into a relation to the Christian life as his, his standard practice was. Um, maybe that gives you a little bit of an idea, but um, that's a great question. I wish I had a better answer for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, you, if you've read, um, I mean, most of his hymns are really dense with, um, with theology and take some real unpacking. Um, I think in my life I've uh, sat through a couple Christmas sermon series on Hark the Herald Angels Sing, just kind of, you know, week by week going verse by verse and unpacking all the Christology in there, right? Um, yeah, he would, he would give, um, you know, standard declaimed sermons as well. Um, it wasn't one or the other. Um, but yeah, the hymns absolutely supplement that kind of practice. Yeah. Micah. That practice of taking a popular tune and 
saying we're going to put you know hymn words to this and use it in the church did that originate with charles wesley probably not um i mean yeah the wesleys were a very musical family and so um i would guess that they kind of uh, perfected that kind of practice um but no i would imagine that's been around for um for a long time yeah um Let's see, how are we doing on time? It's almost 10.30, so I probably, when do I need to stop? 10.30. 10.30, all right, well, <laughs> never mind then. Okay, with, uh, I had two other hymns that I wanted to look at, but um, you can look at your, they're both on the handout, you can analyze them in your own time. Uh, while we have a little bit of time left, I'd like to uh, call Marcus Schwarting to assist me. Um, I thought it would be good in good revival style to end with a real rousing hymn. So, um, one of my favorites, hopefully yours too, um, Go for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, um, which I always thought was a really grotesque image when I was a kid, <laughs> right? Um, but of course he, mean, he means languages. I wish I could speak a thousand languages to praise God in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's also, that's okay, that's good too. Um, right, take it away. Thank you very much, Mark. That was great. It was wonderful to be able to discuss hymns. Um, next week, we are having catechesis, and I am going to be the one presenting. And we're going to do kind of a little bit of a switch here, because I picked a theologian from this book on All Thy Lights Combined that talks about figural reading. And I picked the theologian because I think for a lot of us, including myself, we think only a propositional reading of scripture is how you come up with doctrine. 
So come next week and find out how he used figurative language to uh, defend the Trinity. Also, two weeks from day, the first Sunday of Advent, we are going to have a guest speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Barbeau from Wheaton College. And he wrote the chapter in this book on William Coleridge. And so we're going to be talking about Coleridge, and it should be very, very wonderful. So thank you for coming, and see you in the next two weeks.